so it's trying to write about what is what is truest, you know, to kind of where I am today. What am I feeling today? Let me write that. Um, let me write my struggles. Let me write the things that I doubt. Let me write the things I rejoice in. You know, it's super counterintuitive, but when you do that, people respond way more than when you make some sort of pronouncement or preach or um, give them some kind of platitude. You're honest and people find themselves in that. It takes a long time to figure that out as a songwriter. It took too many years, but um, I'm trying to figure that out now, trying to do that now. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to Season 2 of Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick. On today's program, I'm talking with my friend, Nashville-based singer-songwriter Jill Phillips. Jill started her music career after graduating from Belmont University, and her guitar-based folk rock sound combines deep and penetrating lyrics with an ever-fresh take on subjects like marriage, parenting, friendship, and the struggles of joys of the inner life in Christ. Her debut album, self-titled Jill Phillips, was released in 1999 on Word Records and produced by Grammy Award-winning songwriter Wayne Kirkpatrick. After touring extensively with Cademan's Call and Bebo Norman, Jill decided to step into the world of performing and recording as an independent artist. Her last several albums have received critical acclaim from CCM Magazine, Christianity Today, and numerous indie artist blogs. As you'll hear in our conversation, Jill's art and music come from a deep and authentic place within as she wrestles both with what it means for her own heart to flourish, but also to be a source of love, mercy, and justice in her family and community. To learn more about Jill, visit jillphillips.com or discover her music on iTunes or rabbitroom.com. Special thanks to our producer and engineer, Brian Beatty, for deftly knocking it out of the park every time. Jill Phillips, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. I've been really excited about this because you've got a new record. You've done, this is your 10th album, right? I don't know. <laughs> and that said, I'm not really sure that sounds right. That sounds well, right. I, I counted up what was on the website, and this was number 10. It's Lead Me Home. Tell me about yeah. this new record. You know, this album is a collection of hymns what I call gospel songs, spirituals. Um, they came out of sort of, um, how I was raised in the South and in church and, um, being the granddaughter of, um, people who grew up in rural Eastern North Carolina. And, um, so as I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do this year, I just kept hearing, um, a call to return to those songs, to that music, and um, came up with this this collection. And the starting track, the initial song, uh, Come Ye Sinners, it starts out where right from the beginning you kind of set a tone and a mood for the whole record. Were you shooting for that? I think so. <laughs> you know, you never know how it's going to turn out. We always, I always kind of hold it loosely. I think I felt like that would be the first song of the record, but sometimes you just don't know until you hear it and how it sounds at the end. But it felt like a, call, a welcoming 
call. Um, it felt like sort of thematically sort of similar to what kind of goes through the whole record, which is this sense of grace and um, God's presence in vulnerability and in suffering. So I felt like it was just, it was kind of a good way to, to start. I felt like I can get people's attention. And the, the rest of the project, and I keep saying record, and for those of our listeners that are like under under 35 or 40 years old, they're going to go, what's a record? Right. But of course, <laughs> a CD project album. There, there's a theme through this album, and it seems like through a lot of your music, if I can make reference to another uh, title of a previous album you did, Nobody's Got It All Together. Mm-hmm. There's this theme in a lot of your music, and especially in this new one, Lead Me Home, that we don't have it together in life, that you don't have it together on one side of the coin. And then the other side of the coin is, but Jesus is good. Yeah. Um, tell me about that, how that theme plays out in, in this project. Well, I think that is always what I have been drawn to. And I, I don't know really why. I mean, we could get way into, you know, personality, life story stuff to analyze that. But I think the truth is those are the kinds of songs that have always spoken to me, that have always called to me, that have always like moved my heart, are songs that sort of acknowledge God's goodness and faithfulness, but don't minimize or skip over um, hard things in life or suffering. And it's kind of, you know, the both and. And I think that's a hard place to live, but that is where most of us live. That's that's what most of us need to hear or find encouraging. So I wanted songs when I was looking through these songs and looking through lyrics, I wanted songs that made me feel like um, there was hope, there was truth, there was something truer than my own understanding of things or even my own feelings. But at the same time, really acknowledging what life is is like for many of us at times. And so when I when I started researching the stories behind the songs, I was I don't know why I would be shocked to find this out, but it was kind of pleasantly surprising to realize that they were all written in that sort of place. So no wonder they were they were moving me. You know, there were songs written from um you know civil rights movement, there were songs that um were written by people who were dying. Um, there were songs that were written in war times. I think that it's not a coincidence that these songs have lasted, I guess is what I felt when I was listening to them. They have just reached a large amount of people over a long period of time. So a lot of these songs people will be familiar with, but you've given a fresh, uh, a fresh take and spin on it. Can you give me an example uh, of maybe going a little deeper into one of these songs that the origin surprised you? Sure. Well, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. Um, some people call it Take My Hand, Precious Lord. You see it written um, a lot of different ways. I had heard that song several times um, by different you know, gospel singers, or I think Faith Hill did a version of it. I think Mahalia Jackson, it was Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite hymn, and she sang it at his funeral. Wow. Um, and then it was sung at her funeral. So it was it was just one of these beloved songs, gospel songs. And um, I didn't know anything about the man who wrote it. And I found out it was written by this African-American pastor named Thomas Dorsey. And he wrote it... Um, right after losing his wife and child in childbirth. And so he was in the midst of this 
incredibly intense pain and what he describes as a deep depression, but holding on to his faith. I, I believe this is a story. I've, I've read it. Um, I haven't seen him speak about it in person. Obviously, he's deceased. But um, he basically said he was overwhelmed with this piece one day and ended up writing the song. So, um, you know, you just you believe these words <laughs> when you hear them. Like when I heard it, I just I knew there was something deep and resonant about it. And then you hear the story and you know why it's just coming from a place of depth and struggle and faith. Um, I think that stuff translates. I really think it, it just stands the test of time. And I think one of the reasons why I've always been drawn to your music and as I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years, uh, that your personality and your heart is that you feel things deeply and you really experience life deeply. I hope so. You know, that's definitely what I aspire to do and to be just when you're an artist, you just, or a human, you know, a human being, you want to be awake. You want to be paying attention to what's around you. You know, if I'm not awake, if I'm not paying attention, I can't write songs. I can't, um, or certainly write songs from an honest place. I mean, you can write songs and not be awake. I've done that before. Um, but not, not things that are honest and I can't parent, I can't be a wife, be a friend if I'm not awake. So that is, you know, that's something we're always trying to do. So I get what you mean by awake. Uh, that's some of the language that I use, but say more about what you mean about awake. I think, um, it's paying attention to what God is doing in my life, in my neighborhood, in the lives of those around me, just paying attention and, and knowing how that makes me feel, um, letting it drive me to prayer, paying attention to, to what's going on in my own heart, what he's teaching me, where I am struggling, where I'm feeling like I'm, um, to use Andy Crouch's word, flourishing, you know, just kind of um, paying attention to the details of my life and not just checking out or um, giving a pat answer to something or writing. I, I mean, I did this a lot when I first started writing songs. I would write what I thought people would want to hear instead of what I actually thought or felt. You know, that's, gosh, you know, I would, I just thought, well, this is what sounds good. This is what I think is true. This is what the Bible says, but maybe I wasn't even really feeling that, or maybe I, it, it wasn't, maybe it was true, but it wasn't truest, you know? So it's trying to write about what is, what is truest, at least in as much as I can understand it as a, as a human being, you know, to kind of where I am today. What, what am I feeling today? Let me write that. Um, let me write my struggles. Let me write the things that I doubt. Let me write the things I rejoice in. And, um, you know, it's super counterintuitive, but when you do that, people respond way more than when you make some sort of pronouncement or preach or, um, give them some kind of platitude. You're honest and people find themselves in that. It takes a long time to figure that out as a songwriter. It took too many years, but, um, I'm trying to figure that out now, trying to do that now. So out of this awakeness, as you sang and performed your new album, what song was uh, the most difficult or the most personal for you to 
record uh, in light of living out of this place of awakeness, which means living out of reality? Yeah. Um, it always surprises me. You know, I just never know which songs are going to be easy to record or which ones are going to be hard or which ones are going to come together quickly. I'm always surprised by the process, which is, I guess, good. <laughs> you know, um, there's sort of, you, you come with an open hand and you trust the people that are, that you're working with to bring what they bring, you know, to, for the Holy Spirit to do his work and to, to do what he does um, in the creative process. But I was really surprised that I had a, a hard time singing Great Is Thy Faithfulness on this album. It's the song I knew the best. It's the song I've been singing for the longest time. It was in a low key. It wasn't hard to sing. I would not have thought that would be the case. But I think it just resonated so deeply with me. It made me think about my grandmother's funeral last year. Um, my grandma B who I was really close with, and I sang that song at her funeral. And so there's something about just the beauty of that song, the power of the words, the simplicity of the words, and then thinking about her. And she was also somebody who embodied God's faithfulness in my life. And, oh, man, <laughs> there were I remember trying to sing this song and we were in Gabe's studio. It was just me and Andy. And I, I just could not get through it. I could not get through it. And I would, I would think that I was doing it. I'd be like three fourths through. And then I would just get this like catch in my throat or this lump in my throat. And I could not go on. And I would just sometimes just double over and just cry and just weep. And after about four times of doing that, Andy was like, why don't we go to dinner and maybe we'll come back and do a different song. And, and I did. And I ended up recording eyes on the prize in like three takes that night. And, you know, if you had asked me, I would have told you eyes on the prize would be the hardest to sing. So I don't know. Music is like that. It, it takes you by surprise. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, sure. As, as I listen to great is thy faithfulness. Uh, it's a very different take on the song, not necessarily musically, but every time I've heard that song, a person is singing that song as this declaration of strength and as this statement of how strongly they believe. And the way that you sang it, if I can say it this way, there was a vulnerability and a sense of like, I'm just clinging here. I'm just clinging to hoping that this is true. Absolutely. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm singing it out. And it was so, uh, so powerful and so moving. So Thank you. Um, Thank you. I'd like to play that song for the people that are listening right now. Is that okay with you? Absolutely.
So, Jill, you talked about being awake, and I love how you define that. What are some of the practices that you do uh, in your life as a mom, as a wife, as a musician who is pretty consistently putting out new albums? How do you cultivate awakeness? It has evolved over the years. Well, one of the ways that uh, one of, I guess you could call it, spiritual practices, focal practices, or whatever you call it. Um, for me, as being in nature and hiking, that has just been essential for me in the past couple of years. I have just found that when I have no words or when I am having a hard time understanding something or grieving something or even just meditating on something good, um, silence and being in nature is it is a healing thing for me. So I try to do that at least once or twice a week. And, you know, I'm fortunate now in that my kids are in school and I couldn't do this when my kids were younger. You know, it was just kind of catch as catch can do what you can. But 
since they've been in school, I've been, I've been trying to do that. I, when my youngest went to kindergarten, I started seeing a spiritual director. It was kind of my gift to myself to do that once a month. And she is, was a therapist for years. And, um, and also, uh, you know, it is a, is a trained spiritual director, Ignatian spiritual practices. And so that's been a huge gift to me. I try to, um, be in like community with people. Like I go to a mom's group at my church whenever I can. Um, and I, I journal pretty regularly and read the Bible and all of these things that sounds really like impressive or something. Like these are all things that I have like struggled with over the years and have sometimes been faithful about and sometimes not at all. But when I, if I want to be healthy, if I want to be well, if I want to be awake, I can always tell that these things in my life really contribute to that. When I'm doing them, I can tell. And it sounds like the the common denominator in everything you said is uh, that you pay attention to your inner life. Yes, I'm really trying to. You know, it's work. I mean, you know, it's work. It's not easy. It takes commitment. It takes... um, you know, it takes showing up. It takes being vulnerable with people. It takes um, opening yourself up to people speaking into your life and telling you when you're being crazy or when you're being a jerk or when you're off track. Um, you know, I have to do that. It's it's hard, but it's good. I have real friends in my life who speak truth to me, who I can be absolutely myself with. And that is a gift. That is a real gift. Tell me more about what spiritual direction has been like and meant to you. I I know your spiritual director, and you've got one of the best ones there is. Yeah. Um, but tell I me, know, right? Yeah, tell me how that process has has helped you grow spiritually. Because a lot of people think spiritual direction is just therapy, but it's different. Right, it is different, and I think I'm just beginning to understand. And I've been in spiritual direction for, gosh, I guess five years. This will be my fifth year. What I realized is that um, I don't think I even knew what I was asking or doing when I when I showed up. I think I just knew that I needed to that I had um, fallen asleep to God in my life. You know, I just had I I was in routines and patterns and ways that I had always thought about Him and um, personality stuff and. Um, I don't think I realized until I got in spiritual direction that I thought of God as sort of distant, like, like kind of supportive, like he liked me (laughs) and he was okay with me and, and kind of supportive, but sort of distant. And if you had asked me to articulate that, I never could have articulated that. I would have said, oh yeah, God, this and God, that, and God's done this and whatever, and this verse and that. But I, in my core, I, I didn't, wasn't really paying attention to what I thought about God and the way I was living and the way I was talking to Him. And, and it was only through spiritual direction and doing all these visualization exercises and all these kind of things. And I just remember being saying to Gail, my spiritual director, that is so cheesy. <laughs> I was like, that is cheesy. And um, I was just trying to be honest, you know, and she just would kind of smile and Five years later, it is not cheesy. It is not cheesy anymore. Like, 
I just think I'm, I'm more aware of God's presence in my life. I'm more aware of his love for me. I'm more aware of his um, closeness. He, he just doesn't feel as distant. That's, that's what I can say about spiritual direction. That, that is what the, the journey has been like for me. It's basically a friend paying attention to what God is doing alongside of you and helping you along the journey and pointing out the, you know, the landmarks and the road signs and saying, what is he saying to you here? What is he saying to you here? Sometimes on my own, I, I wouldn't know, or I wouldn't think about it. What's really cool is, uh, as you're talking, I'm hearing that it's not just that what you believed about God changed, but what God believes about you, you came to a new understanding of that. Oh, I think that that's a great way to put it. I think um, I had no idea that I didn't really, really believe that he loved me. That would have blown my mind if you had told me that. I would have just said, yeah, I do believe that. I do believe that. I do believe that. But I think at the core, I really didn't. I really didn't believe that. And, you know, one of the things you do in spiritual direction is you meditate on the love verses. Like, um, she has a book that she gives you that are all just the love verses of God in the Bible and you meditate on them. And, you know, you start to get the picture after a while of like, man, I have really, I've really missed this. And it makes sense. I mean, everything in our world is telling us something different unless you spent time with that and in his presence, how would you, how would you know that? I mean, everything in the world is telling you it's what you do it's what you look like. It's what you achieve. It's everything is merit based. So it really takes work to remember what is true. At least it does for me. It's really hard to get the good news deep down in our heart, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Sometimes I think that uh, it's, it's we followers of Jesus that need to be evangelized. Oh my gosh. I know I do. I mean, just being aware that I am loved by God, when I can really, when I have moments of believing that in whatever limited way I can believe that in this life, it changes everything. It changes the way I talk to myself or treat myself or think about myself, the way that I treat others, the mercy that I extend to my kids. I mean, it just really changes everything about the way I am in life. Um, uh, my ability to forgive and um, be patient, um, be nonviolent in a world that is violent. If I'm not connected to the source, uh, you know, there's just, there's no way that's going to happen. It's just not going to happen on my own. I can't do that. You know, as we're talking, I'm aware that there's always people who hear this kind of conversation and they go, that's all well and good. That's that's nice, but we really need to just focus on sin and how bad we are, and and it's only then that the blood of Christ and the cross and God's love for us matters. But uh, I've discovered that it's quite the opposite. Um, that that when you rest in that love that you're speaking of, that it it, it sets you more and more free. Has that been your experience? It has been for me. I mean, and again, I come back, you know, to that term both and. It's like, I don't want, you know, I don't want to, what is the verse like the man who fears God avoids extremes or something? Like, I don't want to be extreme, like everything is okay, evil doesn't exist, 
you know, um, forgive everyone. I, I don't want this wishy-washiness. And I also don't want this like, um, finger pointing attitude either. I mean, I think it, that's why it does come back to the love of God for me. You know, I, I can just do what is mine to do. I don't have any control over what anybody else does or, you know, that's kind of their, um, you know, as they say in recovery, you know, this term, you know, stay in your own lane. All I can do is what's in my lane to do. And if I'm connected to the love of God and God's love for me, that is when I'm operating not out of fear, not out of anger, not out of um, personality or, or sin or what anything that you want to call it. That is the best of who I am and who I'm made to be is when I'm connected to his love. That's just the truth. I feel it when I'm not aware of it, when I'm not paying attention, man, I can be a really um, fearful, angry, judgmental, whatever person, you know, it's right there. It can come instantly. That's a great segue to the song that I'd like to close out with from your album, and that's the song Eyes on the Prize. Can you say a couple of words about that as we close? Yes. Um, well, our mutual friend, Nita Andrews, is the one who told me, she was like, Jill, you have got to do this song. And um, I had only heard it a couple of times, I will confess. Um, and she knew what I was doing. She knew the songs I was getting together and what my heart was for the project. And she was like, just listen to this, just listen to this song. And I listened to it and I watched the video of, um, of Mavis Staples singing it and all of the sort of a montage, um, from the civil rights movement. Basically it's just a montage of people facing violence and being nonviolent and facing, um, hatred and being loving, you know, and then these beautiful, amazing lyrics about uh, of just holding on, holding on and keep your eyes on the prize. And I just thought, oh, man, I'm not African-American. I didn't live through the civil rights movement. But I find that so in- incredibly inspiring. I just find um, that that model, that, that inspiration, it, it just moves me. I think people that can be loving in the face of violence, you know, obviously taking their cue from Jesus. I, I just think that is, that is just profound. And I thought, I just want to sing that song. And um, so I gave it my best, you know, white mom um, try. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jill, uh, I'm grateful for this time. I'm grateful for your gift of music and this album, Leave Me Home. But I'm especially grateful for your heart and how you offer that. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. All in Silas bound in jail had no money for the bail. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Though they thought that they were lost, dungeon shook and the chains came off. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Keep your eyes.
You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.